calling the church to the Lord Jesus and His teaching. This isn't a gospel message of evangelism. This isn't about Paul trying to get Timothy to evangelize Ephesus. We don't evangelize the body of Christ. That's hogwash. Maybe I should say that word. Sorry. That's my go-to word lately. I'm trying to avoid it. It's misplaced. Are there lost people in the, event, in, the in the church? Absolutely, always. Because we're a whole bunch of sinners and some of us can think that we're in Christ and adhere to a certain set of doctrines, which is what Christ's people do. It's part of being a buttress of the truth. We uphold the truth of Christ, the right gospel, the one and only gospel, but we also live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so our call, no Christian has ever been called since the history of humanity to come into the body of Christ and evangelize it and pull out wolves and snakes and unconverted people. No one has that calling and anyone who claims that calling is of the enemy. That's why it's a felony to do something like that in California. If you as much as put handbills on the windshields in a parking lot of a church that is counter to their faith, that's a crime. And I love it. Because it keeps zealots from disobeying Scripture when it comes to preaching the evangelist. But unbelievers will be in the church. There's no way around it. They're going to be there. What is the remedy? Learn the Word of God. Walk together. What a greater joy for someone to come and confess to us one day. You know, I've been, I, I just never saw and rested in, in, the, in the work of Christ until what, this sermon. And the Lord just opened my eyes today. Praise the Lord! It is about thanksgiving and reconciliation. We have nothing else to do there. Nothing. That person does not have to confess anything, does not have to say anything, does not have to evaluate anything, does not have to go through the last 70 years of their lives to come with a list of things they have not done, a list of clothes they did not wear, a list of food they did not eat. It's not a requirement for salvation. It's not good news. It's not hope. It's of the enemy. It is always of the flesh when we insist on these things that are not found in the instruction in the context of the whole of a letter in the Bible. We should not do them. We should not say them. We should not imply them. We should not infer them. And by the love of grace and the love of God, we should never burden the conscience of another human being with that which God has not commanded. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. What's going on, James? No, this is what's happening in Ephesus. This is what Paul is writing to Timothy about. He doesn't detail all this false teaching anywhere. Nowhere. He doesn't care. Why? Because it's worthless. We have an entire generation of lunacy running amok in our world today in the name of warrior for Christ Saying, let us show you all the wrong. Get over yourselves. It is arrogance. And beloved, I've been there. Why do you think I'm so passionately against polemics? Because I used to be the hardest one. Thank God there wasn't an internet. Or there'd be a record of it. I'm a loud person. And I point at my fingers in people's faces and I've spoken very loudly with a smile because I'm angry sometimes I smile. I, 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 I have been loud in public with people who were acting foolish, saying dumb stuff. I could probably teach a class on how to be a wicked soapbox preacher. Started my ministry as a young man on the streets. wrong. It wasn't good intentions. It was denying the sufficiency of the Scripture. Just like Peter did. Just like several of the disciples did. When was that? When they didn't believe Christ and walked away. When they said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. See, we, we forget that the Scripture is not what's written. The Scripture was written down. 
but it walked with the earth. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the gospel. And then He, God, put it in the hearts of the apostles to secure for us so that we could walk with Him too. Jesus Christ died to satisfy the wrath of God for His people. The church, that means the gathered ones that are together. There is no church where there aren't the prescribed, expressed order found in the New Testament. Ten people doing a Zoom call is not church. It's ten Christians doing a Zoom call to the glory of God and Christ is together with them, but it's not church. It's not the church. And part of the things that, that I think we need to understand is the purpose, again, of dealing with the buttress of the truth. Of the truth. I've said this a, a bunch over the last 12 weeks. And you have to take the teaching in whole so that you don't take a myopic focus of a particular thing and think that I'm changing my mind or that I'm misspeaking or that I'm contradicting myself. And not maybe the truth, I may contradict myself. But my intentions that are running up here, I've got about 14, 15 sentences in my head right now that I'm trying to hold so that I don't forget them as I continue to speak mindlessly right now out of my mouth. I'm not aware of what I'm saying. I'm just saying it because it sort of flows out. It's like you got a faucet and then the side of the barrel blows. And it's wet. Everything's wet. That happens sometimes. I wish I could control it. But Paul says in, 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 in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is the pillar and the bunch of the truth. And then he expressly deals with this amazing little hymn type thing about who Christ is and his incarnation and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his promise to come. And it's just this neat little picture of the person of Christ. It's not sufficient to say that's the gospel, but it is the gospel because it points to Christ. Is it the whole gospel? Absolutely not. But it is good news. It is hope. And it's written to believers who know the context. Somebody could say something about Christ and the whole assembly. Amen. It is so. Why? Because we know the whole thing. We don't have to get into every jot and tittle of every expression of every theological thing. And that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to follow along in the shepherding as a believer when you're not in the church every week. And that's why it's immensely devastating to our mental health and our emotional health and our physical health and our spiritual health and everything else when we walk away that's how perfect. But when we walk away just flippantly from being in the assembly. And I, I, would, I would, if I were a betting man, I would bet that most people who don't attend on a regular basis don't even listen to the subsequent messages that they miss. So they come in here three weeks later and then they don't even know what's going on and then they go, oh yeah, praise the Lord, I know you don't like Taco Bell. And that's all they're able to listen to because it's the only thing they're disciplined to hear. It's the silly little things that I say. So today I want to talk about the grace of church discipline. Church discipline as what we've been defining as a means of grace. And we've talked about it a lot, but here's an area that we haven't talked about. And some of you, not just one of you, but many of you have come to me over the last three or four months and have made a concern known to me that you don't know how to approach or to relate to those people who have been disciplined from our midst. And I started to think, Wow, what an assumption on my part that everybody understands that. Because if it depends on how we, you know, we read 2 Corinthians or we read 1 Corinthians, we see pretty clearly, right? Throw his body into the pit where Satan can, can tear him up. I got that. You get angry, you get frustrated. Yeah, get him, burn him. I've been in a meeting before with 200 people. Literally, if they'd have had hay forks and torches, it would have looked like medieval days. When 46 people were disciplined out of the church because of refusal to submit to the Word of God, they cheered. And I went outside and threw up. Sick. What was I, 24? And then the later to have these mature, so-called godly men instruct me on why it was okay for these people to be 
excited about. What? I didn't last long there, 14 months. The church discipline. What does it mean? Discipline, it means it means what? Correction? Training. There's a good word. And we've talked about this already in the letter to Timothy. Positive, formative training. That's discipline. I mean, I've been working out more in the last few months, just trying to get my arthritis under control and different things and injuries that I've, that I've learned about. Work out a little bit and I do a little bit of weight training. It helps. That's training. That's discipline. Why is it discipline? Because training is discipline. We use the word discipline in a negative context. I was thinking about music last week or the week before a lot and how music is so imperative in our lives in many different ways. And I thought to myself, you know, we hear dum 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 dum. We hear that. That's horrifying to us, right? Oh, no. It's scary. If you're in the pool with somebody, no, no. If you've got a little phobia, you're getting out. It doesn't matter. There's no shark in there. It just scares you. But what if, like, what if that was the music that they decided to use and the shark came up? That would be horrifying. And for those who are scared of clowns, it is horrifying. So it's the context oftentimes of how we deal with certain things and meanings of things that cause us to have the emotions that we have because it creates thoughts. Certain smells create thoughts in my head. Those thoughts start to press in, press in me actions and attitudes that I don't even know that I'm doing, like when I'm hangry, or, or things like that. And the word discipline is sort of like that Jaws thing. Now we're going to have to have some discipline. It's always negative. I don't care how many times I've stood in this pulpit and said it is not negative. It's always corrective. It is always training. It is always restorative. We still are fighting that. No, no. There it is. Church discipline. Or the psycho thing, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Old Hitchcock. I have a story about that after service. The scripture says. That discipline is training. 2 Timothy 3 says that the Word of God, the all Scripture, is breathed out by God. That means God has written it. God's Word is His voice. And it is profitable. I mean, it's, it gains something. It's useful. For what? Rebuke, correction, training, and righteousness. That's called discipline. All those things are discipline. The purpose of the elders is to continually discipline the church in a both positive and negative sense that we positively formulate and form and grow and mature as a people and that we also correct negative attitudes and negative behaviors and negative theological things. And it's an ongoing, always, every day, it's what I do. Back in 2008, I got my certification in health, fitness, weight loss coaching, and I started helping people pro bono do some stuff and they hated my guts. They hated my guts because I took away all their food, I took away all their fun, and I didn't let them watch TV. Because they had to do a log about all the times they spent doing certain things and where they spent the most time, we cut it in half in week one. When you need to lose 400 pounds, we're going to get you 100 the first 60 days. It works. This calorie deficits. Don't eat that cake. I didn't say you can have a slice, don't eat the cake. You know. I hate you. I hate you. There's discipline. If there's a coach, there's discipline. If there's a drill sergeant, it's discipline. And as long as you are following the teaching and the training and doing your job and doing what's required, even when it's hard, it's always profitable because while we may feel like we've been run over by a truck, we go, wow, I don't, I don't feel bad anymore. I have energy. I'm, I'm healthy. And then when we do something silly and the coach has to say, no, no, no. We think it's negative, but it's always for our good. The church is always in a state of training. Always in a state of training. And those, according to the Scripture, who refuse training are those who refuse Christ. And has a sufficient word given to us through the apostles. Now I'm talking to the church, I'm talking to the assembly, I'm talking to the brothers and sisters in the faith. So when I use phraseology, just like when I, I was accused one time of, of preaching a universalism, was a young man who was in the faith was arrested and put in prison. He, he's passed away a couple of months back. 
And the advice I gave him when he was incarcerated is he just got to seek after the Lord. Just got to seek for Because those who are in him, those who have been born of God, seek after him. And when we don't, we're called back to seek after him. Aren't we? Our good father. Somebody heard an audio clip of that. See, he's a heretic. Well, if I'm a heretic for telling the people of God to seek after him, then call me such. Because that's the father I know from the scripture. Those who refuse it, who refuse training, the positive or the negative, and the correction, etc., according to the Bible, are to be put out of the lives of the local church and the body and the lives of its members until they come back willingly to be submissive to the instruction of Jesus Christ. The New Testament is written to different audiences for different purposes, as I've already said, and without reading the entire Bible in its context, one will never understand the point of the collection of writings. They won't see it. Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me there. It'll be a few years before Brother Trey gets there, so... I won't mess up anything he's got going on. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to go to four different places in the scripture today to formulate this understanding of church discipline and its necessity and how we relate to those who have been disciplined and refuse it. Who refuse discipline. Okay? Verse 7. But grace. I can't stand starting a sentence like that, but I have to for the sake of time. The point is, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to me. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower ends of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. That is the death of Jesus and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And he gave the apostles, and he gave prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Let me say it again. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what I'm telling you, that the elders are to be teaching and training, that's what we should be doing. And not just teaching stuff to know in our brains, but stuff to do with our bodies. Stuff that we know in our brains affects what we think about and our attitudes, and our attitudes can affect what we do with our bodies. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the church, of the body of Christ, the local assembly, until, verse 13, we attain the unity, all of us, the unity of the faith. You see that? I don't have time for this right now, but when that, when that text gets landed, that's going to be big. Until we keep teaching and coaching and preaching and overseeing and praying and correcting until everybody among us is either been disciplined out of the church and restored or walking together in unity of the faith. And we keep doing it. When's that going to happen? Glorification. <laughs> so we're just going to keep doing it. Bit of the body until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to mature personhood, manhood, womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be Children, I'm writing an article about this very verse today. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, that's persuasiveness and dialogue and discussion and gossip and slander and arguments and everything else, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head of the Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And verse 17 says, Now this I say, and I testify in Jesus Christ, that you must no longer walk as heathens do. That's the point of saying Gentiles. Because he's writing to Gentiles, right? He's saying unbelieving heathens do in the futility and the stupidness and the uselessness and the emptiness of their lives. This is hard. This is hard to swallow. Because this is where the American church really thrives. 
whole preacher going to stop. He got the boots on, but they're going to stomp my feet. It's going to feel good and bad at the same time, but I'm going to walk out. I'm going to get some things straight. That's not the point of this teaching. That's not the point of this. Paul wrote this letter to encourage and to build and to equip and to instruct the church for her joy. And the way most Christians walk around in their horror, fear, terror, suspicion, paranoia, and everything else, they have no joy. And I don't want to hear the gospel they're talking about. You just need the truth. You'd be happy like me. God bless you. No, thank you. I'll eat at home. So the whole point of the church being together is we don't see programs there. We don't see all of that. We see the church growing together. Let me say for a second, let me give you a sound bite to hang me with that I think 100% of the Christian life should be spent focusing on the church growing together. No other purpose. I ain't worried about you being called to be an evangelist or a missionary or anything else because those things are superfluous to the norm and those things are always going to fall right back into the, to succumb right back into the authority of the local church. There's no such thing as a missionary without a local church. There's no such thing as an evangelist who's not doing the work of evangelism through and for the sake of the building of the unity of the faith for the local church. That's why parachurch ministries. I don't understand. I don't understand. And so if that's the truth, and if church discipline is the primary point of the church in instruction, then it is a vile wickedness to let the church exist without corrective instruction. Without training, isn't it? An elder without training is nothing. A church without training is dead. It's a dead faith. I got me and Jesus. I'll see you in heaven. Goodbye. It's worthless. No love. No 1 Corinthians 13 being fulfilled. No nothing. See, God is sovereign over His church and He will not let His church be destroyed. The gathered ones will not be destroyed. But individual people all over the world are not the church. Now what a part. Do we understand this? We understand this through what the apostles teach and through what Jesus teaches. Which I would say are the exact same things if they're written in the Bible. If Paul wrote it, Jesus said it. Because he speaks by the authority of Christ. That the Spirit of God and Christ Himself sent Him to be the messenger, the apostle, the overseer, the planter of the people of Christ. And what he says holds authority as a command. And so church discipline is necessary. So let's look at the several ways in which church discipline is applied in a negative sense. We talked about the positive sense. We know we teach and we learn and we grow. Let's talk about the negative sense. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. That's as familiar to most people in evangelical America as Ephesians 5 is to a men's ministry. Jesus says some things. Jesus says a lot of things. I don't like Matthew's gospel. I don't like I don't like Luke either. I love it, but I don't like it because when I read the words of Jesus and I know the point in which He's speaking and who He's speaking against, it hurts my soul. In the very beginning of this chapter, He's, he's in the middle of some teaching and He talks about you know, what the disciples came up and says, Am I the best one or what? My God, who's the greatest? Who's the best disciple? Because they all thought John was. They all thought Jesus thought John was. But John was like the most humble of them all. So therefore, he probably was the greatest according to Jesus. But no one would ever say that 
But Jesus tells them, He says, unless you change your mind and become like, it's a simile. He didn't say be a little child. He said become like a little child. How's that in your brain? In your thinking? In your dependence? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now see, we can put all these things together. We saw they talked about Nicodemus, right? How does that work? The Spirit of God breathes life into you. It's pretty effective, right? Breathing. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody wants to be a child. I'm sure we've all had those moments when we were at the precipice of of, uh, you know, of growing up and oh, I wish I was little again. The time we start talking, can't wait to be 20. Can't wait to be 30. Can't wait to be, oh, wish I was still 30. <laughs> you know? I wish I was still 40. <laughs> you just hold on. Nobody wants to be a child again. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great stone, a piece of brick, rock, concrete tied around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Well, isn't Jesus a loving little man? You mess with any of my children? You cause them to fear? You cause them to cry in unbelief. You cause them to shudder in horror, wondering if I have saved them in my promise. It'd be better for you to die in the sea. And fishes eat your corpse. I mean, this is what Jesus said to these people. Oh, this isn't little G-rated here. No, it's not G-rated. It's big G-rated. It's God-rated. This is the wrath of God. This is the love of God. That was stupid, but it worked, didn't it? I really like what said Big G rated. I like that. That's all y'all remember, right? And then he goes, oh, this is the same teaching. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. This is happening, y'all. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. In California, there was a context in which I always had to go to for this. Because in certain pockets of the region of the East Bay, there was always this evangelical hatred. Y'all live there. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we know who he's talking about there. Those people tempt me to sin every day. I'm going to kill them. I mean, you know. Hatred. But it more so includes the context of how we cause each other to stumble in the faith. Because what's the context of this conversation? Which one of us is doing the best job for you? Which one of us has it all right? It's me. It's me and Jesus. You can tell. I love all my children. <laughs> it's not talking about debauchery. It's not talking about sexual immorality. It's not talking about thievery. He's not talking about hurting people and murdering people and blowing things up and being radical. He's talking about people who are arrogant. People who know that they are right by the grace of God. That's the Pharisee. I am right by your grace and power, God. Thank you. Versus the publican. Satisfy your wrath for me, please, oh God. Just, just give me mercy. Mercy. Woe to these through whom temptation comes. Temptation to doubt whether or not Christ's work is sufficient. Temptation to doubt whether the Spirit of God has taught you something, even if small and simple. Temptation to doubt whether or not there is, there is hope and sufficient prescription in God's Word to settle differences. Temptation to doubt whether or not I should keep my mouth shut or gossip and slander in the name of truth and calling out evil. your hand and your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. This isn't a command. This is an illustration. Jesus and the apostles taught with illustrations just like I do. For it is better to walk in 
lame or crippled into life than to be thrown into eternal fire with both hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better if you enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of these weak. That's why I love when we see Jude. And he says, be patient with those who doubt. Be patient with the theologically inept. Be patient with the fearful. Be patient with the mindless. Be patient with those who are always seem to be in turmoil. But instruct them in the ways of truth and in the ways of attitude according to truth and the ways of intimacy according to the gospel. Instruct them in ways where their peace will be beyond comprehension. But they will be thankful for the, for the intimacy of grace. Well, I'll tell you, do not despise these little ones. I'll tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? Jesus asked the question. If a man has a hundred sheep, and if one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the multitude of the ninety-nine of the mountains to go search for the one that went astray? Does he not do that? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more over the, than, than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. Instruction. See, Jesus is talking about church discipline. He's talking about instruction. He's talking about what He's about to talk about. And He's saying when one wanders off, we just go after them. How do we do that in the context of the local assembly? We come together in the assembly. We say, you cannot not be here. That is step one. Step two is you cannot decide what you will and will not obey according to the Bible. That is step two. Step three is we plead with them and love them to be united with us. And when they refuse the simple, gracious, loving, kind, careful, gentle caress of Jesus Christ their Savior, they have rejected Him. No matter their theological position. I want your eternal life, Jesus, but your breath stinks. Get away from me. Give me the ticket to heaven, but can you please get your feet off my couch? See how silly that sounds? That's what it's like. If a man has a hundred sheep, he goes after, he celebrates the one that went astray. We go and we celebrate the one that goes astray when they hear the words of God. Why do you think Jesus uses this illustration here about being sheep and a shepherd? Because in John chapter 10, he explains it so clearly as to what he's talking about. The voice of the shepherd, the sheep, know, hear, listen, and follow. Do we like it? No. Do we always do it immediately? No. The late obedience is no obedience. But our Savior is not standing there with a whip, beating us back into the fold. He's already taken the whip on himself. He's standing there like the Father, in Matthew or Luke 15, as we see, looking for us. And those who refused to come to the Father, I guess they weren't sons. It's beautiful. So it is only not only the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones. Excuse me. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven. One of these little ones should perish. My children will not perish. So what happens when a child goes crazy? We put it in time now. Why? So that it can calm down and enjoy fellowship together. What happens when a child decides that they're going to go their own way? We let them go for a season and we keep their bed made so that when they come home they'll have a nice warm place to sleep and we feed them when they come and we're excited to see them. And all that being said, Jesus then says in verse 15, and this is the point of the text today, is if your brother sins against you. Notice he emphasizes that. We don't get to determine who is and who is not our brother. God will not give a human being that ability. We only get to determine if we are going to relate to someone as our brother based on their confession and based on their actions. But we cannot judge them, either elect or not. You see? So if our brother sins against me, this is a personal thing. Go and tell him his fault. You sin against me. But see, my brother's sitting over there. That's none of my business. If I have a good relationship with him and it comes up, I'm able to talk. But if I see him sitting over there, that's between you and him. I stay out of it. It's none of my business. This is not personal relationships here. Interpersonal relationships within the church. 
If you say, hey, with him and I alone, you hurt me, you sin against me because I'm so sorry. You've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, he doesn't stop, he doesn't admit his wrong, he doesn't engage in some way of intimacy, what happens? Take some other folks with you. Why? Hey, would you ride with me? That's all it takes. Would you ride with me? You know how many times I've had to do that? Hey, brothers, can y'all go with me? Where are we going? We'll find out when we get there. I just need some witnesses. I'm not going to fill them in on the way. I'm not going to give them any information. Because all I want them to do is be able to say to the church, if necessary, Tippins tried to reconcile and the guy refused. We don't even know what's going on. All right. Take two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, because what can they plead? It doesn't matter what happened. It doesn't matter what was said. We forgive one another, period. End of discussion. Nobody has to get recompense or lose an eye or lose a foot or lose a hand. Nobody has to dance backward, blindfolded, upside down and naked. There's nothing necessary for us to forgive except to do it. And so the witnesses then say what? Yeah, you just have to listen and repent. And if they do not do that, take it to the church. And if the whole church can't convince them to repent. You notice we're not talking about what happened. We're going to deal with the attitude, the actions. That's it. Then the church is to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's all I'm going to deal with right now. I know we're running late, but i got a few more things to say. Here's the point. What does it mean to address someone as a Gentile tax collector in a first century Palestinian Semitic culture? To treat them as an enemy of the cross. How would you treat an enemy of the cross? Would you be vitriol? Would you be violent? Would you be belligerent? No, you'd be compassionate. But are you going to bring them in for Bible study? Are you going to bring them in for fellowship? Are you going to eat at their table? No, you will not eat at their table. Because they refuse intimacy with one of us. They refuse intimacy with all of us. I can't put my hand in your living room on the left side and eat with you if my right hand is not welcome. That would look funny. But James, if you could just cover your hand with a bag, you're welcome to visit. Jesus speaks. This is about someone sinning against us personally. This is about us reconciling according to grace. This is the only manner that it can be done in individual sins. The treatment is clear. We treat them as a Gentile or a heathen or a tax collector. Someone who would be vile, be unwelcome. But we do it in a gentle way. The person refusing fellowship or refusing correction or refusing to stop their sin or refusing to stop gossiping or what they, uh, they recently like to say in our culture, I'm just telling the truth. I'm marking it. You're like a dog walking a tree is what you are. They're to be cut off, and this is a picture of what it's like to be cut off from Christ. It's a taste of the pain of being isolated. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The disciplined person there is what? He's told to let them feel the pain of their sin. If a person who refuses correction desires to be under the teaching of the Word, they need to repent and make peace with the body of Christ and submit to the teaching of the Word of God. And I have seen some pastors who will say, well, a disciplined person can come in 10 minutes late and leave 10 minutes early. They'll sit in the back of the room because I don't want to go upset the con. I don't think that. I think they're just not welcome. When anyone sees a sin that is not directly related to them, they cannot create new categorical approaches to identifying sin and make action or an idea of something as a sin so that they can appease their own conscience. We don't have the right to do that. And when anyone in any sense refusing the positive correction or the negative correction of Scripture or handling any matter, they then become the offender. I want you to hear this. Every one of these issues where people were excommunicated in the New Testament is because people who were being corrected refused to be corrected. There's nothing that we can do that will just get us put out of the church forever. It's when we don't listen. 
This person who is excommunicated from the body is no longer to be considered or treated as a sibling in Christ. And they forfeit all blessings and relationships thereof. This is a command of God. Jesus' final words on this issue of church discipline is found in Revelation. We don't have time to go there. When He dictates to John this vision of revealed things, Jesus was clear that He would deal with certain congregations because of their behavior and several of them because of their lack of humility and their lack of love. The church of Ephesus in particular He praised them and gave them commendation for their astute theological stances of not allowing Gnosticism and other things to come in and infiltrate. They put it to death very quickly. But He said He's going to burn them out of existence because they didn't have love for them. As the buttress and the pillar of truth, remember, I'll say it again for the third time today, it includes living rightly according to the Bible and dealing rightly with conflict. In addition to correcting falsehood and error in theological things. Rome had their own problems, didn't it? Chapter 16. People were leading others because of their theological position. They were leading others to act in a manner unworthy of the gospel. It's like somebody saying, Sister so-and-so thinks that faith means this. And I'm going to tell everybody not to come to church until she gets set right. Or they publicly shame her. Well, guess who's the sinner in that situation? The woman who doesn't have her doctrine right or the person talking about her? The person talking about her is a sinner. And an elder who won't handle that according to the Scripture and hold both the person in error and the person with the problem with it, who may be justified in their, in their concern to the same level of obedience... Is not fit to stand before the church. We don't take sides. We stand in the same place and those who remain are the only ones who get time. Those who remain with the body are the only ones who actually have a voice. Telling someone to avoid an assembly or not to listen to a pastor who has not been formally disciplined is leading others to live in sin and is binding the conscience of someone else. Discussing the matter with other people will further cause other people to rebel against the teaching of Christ and His instruction, and thus in their own minds justify their wickedness by the smooth talking of the offender who, dis who disobeys God in every way. Corinth had many problems. Here's a different way of looking at some sin. What was the problem? There were a lot of problems. What was the problem in in Corinth that Paul just got really upset about. It was a man who was dealing and having public incestuous relations with his stepmother. It was known. Everybody knew it. It was obvious. They were always together. It was not something that somebody heard through the gossip chain and Paul got wind of. The church knew it. It was an issue where it should have been called out and he should have been removed from the fellowship. Paul said, removing from the fellowship that he might be restored to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes these words. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority, isolation and ostracization, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So when the person comes for repentance and reconciliation, we cannot hold it against them. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for Him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Isn't that crazy? What is Paul's concern? That the church obey Him in everything explicitly about dealing with relational problems and sin in the church and restoring this wicked man. You know what that does? It makes us to be like a child and swallow our pride and to be humble. Oh, look at them. They got, that, they got that wicked old man back in their fellowship. And we praise God for it. And the world looks at it and turns our nose up at us. Spiritual elites turn their nose up at us for reconciling. But is that not the picture of the gospel? If anybody's got a reason to turn their nose up, it is not the Lord Jesus. And instead of turning his nose up, he put his hands out. And he said it is finished. Any love or any interaction with a disciplined person should be when repentance is sought by them 
and only to reconcile this person to unity with the body of God. We can't hang out like friends anymore. Many other examples. Galatians, Titus, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. But remember, in closing, several things. Discipline is the point of the assembly. Instruction and training is the point of our gathering. We are to learn, to grow, and to live according to the grace and for the sake of God's glory. And we dishonor God when we permit humanistic approaches to, be, to exclude biblical instruction. We are the light of the world. We are better off being known as the church that doesn't permit gossips and slanders, mavericks, polemicists, and haters among us than being the largest and most luxurious people in town. It is unloving to permit people to act against the nature of Christ and the mind of Christ without correction. And one of the greatest evils in the world is when our actions are manifest in the lives of others in the name of Jesus. When we say, I'm doing the Lord's work, you disobey too. The church is the buttress of the truth. We are not to tolerate error in doctrine, but yet there is a prescription on how we deal with it. In that intolerance, our hope is reconciliation according to grace and the Bible. Not our own whims and interests or personal, quote, divine eyes, which is something that I coined a few years ago. Some examples about that has happened among us is people who were fed up with Halloween, or people who were fed up with dress, or people who were fed up with the way people parented, or people who were fed up with the way people educated their children, or the way they ate or drank, or what they ate or drank, or the way that they did their clothes, or their health, or their theological vocabulary, or any other sort of thing, such things. Discipline is for restoration. It's for restoring, not destroying. Anything that we do that can destroy in any fashion is not of God. That is why our mouths are the most dangerous in these circumstances. We ought not talk to anyone about a disciplinary issue ever. I saw a screenshot this week that was sent to me about a man who claims to be doing the divine work of God by calling out problems with another pastor who's a friend of mine. And he said he had the right to say what he said about this man, whether it was true, and that God had called him to out him and to avoid him. That's not true. It's a lie. It's a lie from the enemy. This man is not, has not, nor ever will be in a good church unless God restores his mind. Because he's, he's lost it. And secondly, the very thing that he said was in violation of the very thing that's commanded of him as a believer. He doesn't have that authority. It's blasphemy to say I'm doing the Lord's work when I'm actually doing the devil's. The church must be pure. And that is not our goal or guidelines to establish. We don't get to decide what purity looks like. The Scripture teaches us this. So living and teaching, doctrine and lifestyle are the two pillars of glory. The picture of love, the knowledge of the truth. While all manner of evil can come from a true saint, we ought not to permit them to do so without the natural consequence of training. Those who refuse the discipline are also living in rebellion. Those have forgotten we made a covenant together to live as a people for God's glory by His grace. Discipline is a means of grace. If anyone refuses the discipline of another by their conscience telling them otherwise, they're causing problems in the body and will also be called to correction. Sort of like my children through the years when they'd have conflict at school or with peers and they didn't want to really be ugly. They let me be ugly. They let me say, no, I'm sorry, Katie can't come over today. No, I'm sorry, she can't go on that trip. No, I'm sorry, this isn't happening. I won't permit it. And they really didn't want it anyway, you see? societal sense of church. There's a societal sense in which church discipline operates and it must be felt in order for it to be biblical. We are a people, not a place. When someone refuses the manners of life together, they can't get together until they repent. Severity is not the point. Soft and painful sobriety is the point. That's what we're looking for. If we're angry, we're living in the flesh. We're not being led of the Spirit. If we're grieved and burdened, the Spirit can cause us to do that. And the outcome of that is that we pray for those and for others and we praise God for His promises. 
Why? Because this is the picture of grace. This is the picture of the life of Jesus. The one who has bought us with His blood. Preaching Christ is about what He has done. And preaching Christ is also about what He has said to do. We don't get to conflate the two as a means of salvation. Only one will save us. And that is the work of Jesus. As for the one who has been forgiven and received mercy, he or she will live in a manner and be willing to be corrected unto restoration because he and she are forgiven. Those who never seek to be restored to be with us, according to John, are to be understood as never to be others. God, I pray that those who are away will come back. And I pray that they don't treat their family, their spouses, and their children the way they've treated your body. The body of their husband. Who gave his life for his bride. Jesus Christ is our husband who was crushed for us so that we may gather with him in purity. Who was broken and bled so that we may walk in the presence of the Father of light without fear. Lord, have mercy. Let's pray. Lord, the severity of these truths often cause me pain, but Lord, in the midst of it, I know that it is not me who has to deal with the outcome, but only the principles given to me through Your Word that I might be obedient to. You will create the outcome. So help my burden be that for praising you and praying for them. And not to come up with any plan or purpose to do anything different. I need nothing more than your promise. Help your church to be at peace by your promises. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship in this truth. We are righteous because of Christ's righteousness to our account. Let us live in a way worthy of that great gift. In Jesus' name.